0: Well, everybody, welcome back to Deuteronomy class. This is the moment where you make sure you, you got your coffee, which isn't as bad as one preacher says, which is why you still get some rather than not get any, right? Well, we're going to be picking up in Deuteronomy in chapter 7. So if you want to join me in your copy of God's Word and going there, the, the larger section that we're within here in Deuteronomy is what is referred to as the, the Shema, it's a word that means you know, listening, it's uh, translated as hear O Israel. It was a focus on what's the commandment that summarizes up everything that God instructs his people in, and it's to love him with everything that they are and have. And this idea of listening to the Lord, loving the Lord, begins with the fear of God. So throughout this whole section, we see an emphasis on fearing God and keeping his commandment, and in these three chapters of six, seven, and eight, we're in number seven right here, where God gives an external sort of test to Israel whereby they can test if they actually listen to God, if they actually fear him, which will have to deal with their relationship to the other nations and their God's. And we see that beginning here in the first six verses, which we'll read. We're going to see something of Yahweh's promise of what he will do and a a command to be faithful to him, to have fidelity in this relationship that Israel's brought into with him. So we're going to start with reading the first six verses. When Yahweh your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it, And he clears away many nations before you, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations, more numerous and stronger than you. And when Yahweh, your God, gives them over before you and you strike them down, you shall devote them to destruction. You shall cut no covenant with them and show no favor to them. "'Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. "'You shall not give your daughters to their sons, "'nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. "'For they will turn your sons away from following me, "'and they will serve other gods. "'Then the anger of Yahweh will be kindled against you, "'and he will quickly destroy you. "'But thus you shall do to them.' You shall tear down their pillars and shatter their sacred pillars and cut their asherim in pieces and burn their graven images with fire. For you are a holy people to Yahweh your God. Yahweh your God has chosen you to be a people for his own treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So with that reading of God's word, let's pray as we continue our study here. Our gracious Lord, we pray that you help us to grasp the significance of what this text teaches us about your character, about your plan for your creation, the unfolding of the development of your covenants throughout Scripture, that we would understand something more of your greatness and our hearts would be more inclined to fear you and to forsake sin and to follow you enliven our hearts to love you even more as we study your word this morning. Amen. When you begin reading this chapter, it starts with the word, when. When Yahweh, your God, brings you into the land. Now, why do you think it begins with when instead of if? If. All right, were they going to go into the land because of their obedience to the Mosaic Covenant, or were they going to go into the land because of God's promise in the Abrahamic Covenant? The second part, all right, and when you get a really big question like that, you're like, oh, okay, which one was it? <laughs> so what's being pointed out, again, is that these people don't have the ability to, to keep God's commandments. They they don't have the ability to do this. He's going to do this for them. The promise is the thing that is behind their salvation all the time. It's never dependent on their ability to do something for God. They're going to go into the land because of his promise and not because of their performance. So this is a a reminder that God's going to be faithful. God's going to be faithful to fulfill exactly what he has promised to do in history. It can't happen any other way. So this is an encouragement to to future generations that would look back on this where it looks like it's not going to happen. Uh, We're not in the land or we're in the land and there's big problems or now we, we used to be in the land, but now we're in exile. It's like, well, we need to remember that God's going to fulfill his promise, whatever it might look like in my life right now in this moment. And this had an implication for Israel specifically, which you see in verse three. This is the so what. You know, this is an application. This is a sermon application for them from Moses. He says, "You shall not intermarry with them," which raises the question: Well, why? Why should you not intermarry with these people? And it says in verse four, "They'll turn your sons away from following me, and I'll destroy you." This is Everything about making that decision is bad. <laughs> your sons will turn away from me and I'll destroy you. He says, well, so, so what do we do then? He says, well, instead destroy their false worship. Don't, don't allow your sons to even have the, the opportunity to be tempted to join in such things. Well, and why were they to, to destroy this false worship in these other nations? And he says, because Yahweh is your God, but you, you hear that's echoed in the text over and over because they, they needed to be reminded over and over, Yahweh is your God. And they're not gonna get this for a really long time in history. They're gonna think, oh, the, these things are our gods or this is our God and, or these two things or five things are our gods. They were to destroy this false worship system because Yahweh is their God and there isn't another. They were to be faithful to, to him because he had Been faithful to them, and they're described as being a holy, chosen, treasured possession. Now, were they holy because they were just so obedient to everything that God had commanded them to obey? Now, they were holy by declaration. And that was it. You know, you don't see it in their practice so much. Uh, there's very few people within Israel that actually live out this holiness that they're called to. So they're holy by declaration. You know, we talk about this in uh, uh, another way that we're, we're justified by faith. We're, we're made right by God and trusting that He has counted us as righteous. We're not holy because righteousness comes out of us, but we're we're holy because Christ's righteousness has been credited to us. Uh, We're not holy because we give it the old college try and pull it off, you know, like up to 30%, and God just says, well, that's good enough. But also when you see this, this word chosen is used of them, and you see that they weren't chosen because they were lovely, or powerful, or mighty, or numerous people. Uh, we talk about this in, in theology as an unconditional election. You know, they, they weren't el- elected because of conditions that they met. Uh, they, they were elected because God decided to, to put his choosing love on them to make something known about his mercy and his love. It was never conditioned on the people on the recipients of God's love being virtuous or deserving. Which is again a reminder that the ultimate cause of salvation is God. Man never causes his salvation to happen, it's, it's always by grace. God is always the initiator. Salvation is of the Lord only. And it's not because of something that God would foresee. And he says, Well, I guess I'll choose these people because. I can see down throughout time that they'll eventually turn to me. <laughs> no, he, he, he chose them be, before they were ever born. Would you even see that even if all you knew about was the Abrahamic covenant? It's like, well, why were these people chosen? because God chose them, before they ever existed, that they would have a land, that they would be a people, that the the snake crusher would be born from them, the curse reverser would be born from them and cause them to be a nation who would be a blessing to all other nations. And they were chosen for a specific purpose, which was to be God's treasured possession, What you see that God, God gave them special privileges that no other nation had. He, he didn't give the the tabernacle worship and the commandments to anybody else besides Israel. This was a huge privilege to have this these unique services to God among all the nations. And so what God is doing in His love is He's, protect, he's giving them directions to protect them from other nations so that they're not given out or given over to their false worship, but he's also using Israel as his servant nation to be the vehicle for carrying out his judgment in the world on those who deserve it. So sometimes people kind of wrestle with, ah, they're, you know, they're killing Canaanites and stuff, and they, the assumption is, you know, Canaanites are good people. Like, why would you kill Canaanites? I mean, why would you want to have a nation, you know, protect other nations from, you know, basically good people? Well, they weren't basically good people. Uh, they, they were completely evil people, murdering their children in sacrifice to their gods and all, all sorts of wicked things and deserving of God's judgment in which he had been patient with them, for centuries, and uh, and they weren't without a call to turn to fearing God. You know, he did give them a call, and, and some Canaanites would turn. Example, Rahab, the Canaanite who lived in Jericho. Now, when you read through this text, one of the things that you... Don't see in your Bible translations when it switches from the y'alls to a specific you. Uh, It it talks about, you know, y'all together should devote them to destruction. But in verse 3, it moves to a a singular you. In verse 3, it says, you shall not intermarry with them. So this is interesting because what's happening here is he's talking about there's going to be a time when you're in the land. These enemies have been defeated And this text was written for a specific you, a specific king who would, when he would open up his Bible and be making his copy and meditating upon it, he would look at this and be like, oh, I'm in the land, the enemies are defeated, and you shall not intermarry with them. This is a guy who's famous for his marriage problems. His name is Solomon you're like oh there's a bunch of guys with marriage problems in the Bible (laughs) yeah this this is Solomon and it talks about your sons you know if you if you marry them your sons like Rehoboam are going to be given over to these false gods and you know it's it's interesting to think about that as you're reading this text because this this was the the Bible of the prophets and the kings you know this the the, the Torah or Genesis through Deuteronomy was what the the prophets preached and prayed, and, and it's what the kings were to, to write down and to enforce. Israel, as we see throughout history, they, they need a king, but they need a particular kind of king they, they need one who can actually complete the conquest of defeating all of their enemies because they can't do it. They also need a king who can actually keep the covenant in their place because they can't do it. Uh, They need a leader who can be a representative righteousness for them because they don't have it. But they need to have somebody who has that for them and it can be credited to the citizens of that kingdom. Does anybody want to guess who that might be? Genesis. You remember, you know, in kids Sunday school, you know, they had the answer to every question is Jesus. In adult Sunday school, it's Genesis 315. Either way, you're going to be right. One of the, you know, applications that we find for ourselves in thinking about this is that one, one of the ways that you love God is by the things that you hate. You know, God is, teaching his people to love what he loves and to hate what he hates. You think about it like this. If, if, you, if you love marriage, you hate adultery. Uh, a man can't love every woman with the same love. He's to have an exclusive, special love for one. So loving God in covenant means that you have an exclusive, special love for him, which you're not sharing it with anybody else or anything else else. And if you love covenant keeping, then you hate covenant breaking. If you love true worship, then you hate false worship. This probably has made you think about that quote, that famous quote from John Owen where he says, do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. All right. Well, what are you talking about, John Owen, and why do you write these crazy sentences with a bunch of semicolons? Now for the part that we all remember. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. If we love righteousness, we, we will hate sin and want to put it to death. This same sort of truth is found in Romans 8. 12 to 13 where Paul says so then brothers we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh for if you are living according to the flesh you must die but if by the spirit you are putting to death the practices of the body you will live it's interesting as we've already seen in this text that it keeps pointing out you know This is Yahweh, your God. He could kind of think about this as your identity in Christ. He's teaching, you people have a new position. You people have a a new identity. You know, it's that Yahweh is your God. And you need to learn to identify with him in this relationship that he's placed you in. And God's grace, as you see, it, it demands a response. It's not just something that it's enough that you've heard about it and comprehended it. Uh, you also have to destroy the things that are destructive in your life, or they'll destroy you because that's what destructive things do. Like sin, you you keep it destructive sin around, it will destruct you. Was that proper grammar? Yeah. Okay. I'm from Texas. I'm sorry. <laughs> and this uh, again is a reminder that. Law in the Bible isn't about rule keeping. Law law is instruction which is teaching you what your heart is like. It's focused on the heart. The heart is central. And for Israel, what they're being taught is if they let the Canaanites live, it'll, it'll turn them away from the number one thing which they were supposed to do, which was to love Yahweh your God with all your heart. Uh, it would result in them violating the first two matters of the ten words or the first two commandments. For us, this reminds us again that, that our heart is to belong to God alone our our control center belongs to God alone our our thinking, our affections our our actions our, our resources, all of that belongs to God because everything's to be from him, through him, and to him. So don't let others turn your heart away from him. Now, the next section we're going to look at is verses 7 through 11. And here we're brought back to understanding the nature of love, which is one of the the focuses of the book of Deuteronomy. It's focused on the heart. It's teaching you how to understand love. This is how God defines love. Love. Let's pick up in verse 7 together. Yahweh did not set his affection on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the people, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But because Yahweh loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your fathers, Yahweh brought you out with a strong hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. From the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. You shall know, therefore, that Yahweh your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments, but repays those who hate him to their faces to make them perish. He will not delay with him who hates him, he will repay him to his face. Now, in those first two verses, seven and eight, one of the things that you see here is that the nature of love includes affection and choice. You see those two words there, Yahweh did not set his affection on you nor choose you. He's de- describing what the nature of love is like. In Paul House's Old Testament theology, he writes concerning this, quote, God's love and promises precede any activity on Israel's part. God's choice of Israel was based on sheer electing love, not on numerical prominence. And the gift of land occurs so that Yahweh can keep promises made to the patriarchs. So again, this is just reinforcing that God didn't love them because they were lovely. This was all based on God's character and promises that he had made, which Pre-existed the existence of these people. The, the focus on this text is on these words chose and redeemed. It's focused on the fact that Yahweh chose and Yahweh redeemed. You know, God is at the center of everything that's happening in history here. And we're seeing that God's love is a, an electing love. It's a redeeming love. It's like what we're maybe more familiar with in Ephesians 1, 4, it says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. You know, remember we had talked about how, you know, what love is, it's a choice. You know, love chooses. I'll elaborate on that in just a little bit. When you see here, Yahweh's love isn't based on Israel's Numbers. Well, if it's not based on their numbers, you know, what is it based on then? This made me think of uh, that text in First Corinthians one. It says, "For consider your calling, brothers, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble." Now, think. It, just look around in the room. And before you became a Christian, how many of you were wise according to the flesh? Like you're just known as like a smarty pants philosopher in the world. How many of you were mighty? Nobody. How many of you were noble or came from some sort of like royal, worldly lineage at least? It's like nobody. Just, There's just a bunch of nobodies in here, which is the... That's the word that Paul uses to you know explain us as Christians to describe us we're the nobodies it says but God has chosen the foolish things of the world, and that's talking about us you know it's like you know if you're going to pick why don't you pick the the influencers uh the the, the great leaders, the powerful in the world. And so that God has chosen the weak things of this world to, to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may abolish the things that are, so that no flesh may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that just as it is written let him who boasts boast in the Lord who do we have to boast in for our salvation is it because we were just so wise and we considered the the evidence and we put God on trial for a while and thought you know what he's worthy of my worship or we handed out an application for a personal deity and thought you know Jesus really meets my requirements the best I guess I'll let him have the position it's a, it doesn't work like that it's not about it's not from you choosing him that he becomes your God, but him choosing you and bringing you into this relationship and reminding you not many not many of you were wise, not many were mighty, not many of noble, but it doesn't mean you know none of you were sometimes you do have like a really smart person who comes in or somebody of noble birth or who has some might in the world. So they're not excluded. So if you come across those people, you don't say, I'm sorry, but you're outside of the kingdom of God. There's no hope for you. But they can also join in in having their boast only in the Lord who saves by electing grace. You see, Yahweh's love is based on covenant. Covenant. Uh, it's based on a choice that he made. You remember, he, he made a covenant with their forefathers, with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and he keeps bringing this up with them over and over and over. You know, he didn't call them because of something in them. He sovereignly chose them because of his covenant loyalty to Abraham. He chose them by grace alone. And in the systematic theology, the biblical doctrine, Uh, Edited by MacArthur and Mayhew, there's a definition of God's grace here, which says, quote, God's grace describes God as perfectly bestowing favor on those who cannot merit it because they have forsaken it and are under the sentence of divine condemnation, end quote. Love is a choice, as we've talked about. It's, It's a choice to Limit your affections. Uh, it's a choice to be devoted. It's a choice to to be faithful and to keep choosing to be specifically devoted in a unique way. It's it's a choice to be reliable. It's a it's a choice to give yourself to another in interest of others above yourself. I like this definition by. Uh, John Feinberg in the book, No One Like Him, he says, this kind of love is love that loves even the unlovely and unlovable. It is a self-sacrificing, self-giving love. It is not given because of the deservedness of the recipient, but because of the giver's choice. It is love that seeks the benefit of the recipient, not the giver." simple way that we've thought about that and talked about it is love doesn't get, it gives. You know, we don't think of, you know, our loving people by what we get out of them, but love is something we just choose to give to somebody whether they deserve it or not. Now, these words, uh, choose and love, as you've seen, are closely connected in Scripture. They're related to one another. And in a sense, you're seeing that they're, they're somewhat synonymous. You know, choosing and loving are linked together. But what about, you know, the opposite of love, which is Hate. How does that contrast? Well, hate is the not choosing of others. It's not expressed in emotive terms. You know, usually we think about uh, love. We think about these warm feelings. You know, being attracted towards something. And hate, we think of as anger or having angry feelings. But when you're seeing these words aren't used. Exclusively in that way in Scripture, and it's not that they're without emotion, but it's primarily focused on this idea of choosing. You know, love is choosing one; hate is not choosing another. Which I offer that to you to help you make sense of that that statement in Malachi and Romans, where it talks about you, know, Jacob, I loved, but Esau, I hated. It's like, well, what was the difference between, you know, God's uh, election or choosing of Jacob and his, his hatred toward Esau. It's like, well, Esau, he just didn't choose him. You know, he wasn't trying to force Esau to, to not follow him like Esau. was like, well, Lord, I really, wanna, I really want to follow you. And God's saying, well, I'm not going to let you. But instead, the way that it works is Esau just, he had no interest in having any sort of birthright in God's family. And God just let him have it. You know, he, he didn't choose to change his course like he did with Jacob. The way that electing love looked in Jacob's life was that God disciplined him as a son, which was, you know, something he was reminded of every day that he limped through life. I'm referring to that moment when you know that angel, who I think was the pre-incarnate Jesus, touched him on the hip. he's like, ah, <laughs> and then he just limped the rest of his life as the Lord disciplined him and humbled him. But God didn't do that for Esau. Also in this text, in verses 9 to 10, I think you you get this concept, Yahweh is love. You know, this, this is who he is. It's a perfection of him. You see that uh, he is love. He is redeemer. He is your God. Uh, he is God, and he's the faithful God. And what does his faithfulness look like? Well, it looks like this. He, he, he keeps his covenant. He keeps loyal, loving kindness to a thousand generations. But love also looks like this, in that he repays his enemies in the interest of protecting his, his holy name and his chosen people. You know, he's going to protect you know, his character that it's holy and that he's not going to just let injustice run rampant forever. He's, he's going to bring about vengeance and justice, but he's also going to protect his holiness in choosing a particular people to protect them and to rescue them as he's promised. Which then brings us to a, another so what in the text. In verse 11 says, this is how they're to respond to this. Therefore, because God has loved you like this, you shall keep the commandment and the statutes and the judgments which I am commanding you today to do them. So the logic here that's being pulled together is it's because God chose you, because he has redeemed you, keep these things. So he doesn't say keep these things so that you can get the relationship. You're saying, because God has graciously brought you in these, this relationship, now keep them. You, don't, you have a new relationship, not just with God, but also his law instruction as well, but it works in that order. It starts with you're brought into covenant relationship with him, then you walk in him and in that relationship. They were to keep the commandment which was, you shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. They were to keep the statutes, which were the judicial rulings, which were to reflect God's character and redemptive work in the world. They were to keep the judgments, which was God's decisions, which were to shape their decisions that they made in life. And they were to do them, not to be a hearer only and deceive themselves, but to actually live by them. Because you remember when they received the 10 words, how, how did Israel respond? How did they verbally respond? <laughs> they said, we're going to do all of it. How did they actually respond? They didn't do any of it. And you know, this gets pointed out and where they're, they're prosecuted by the law and God tells them, you have spoken well. You, you've said the right thing, but oh that you had a heart! Oh that you had a control center that you would actually want to do these things and were able to do them and lived in them. See, so see the 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 law comes in to give a, a diagnosis of what's actually wrong with the the human condition. So you have a, a heart problem. You know the the foundation of everything that that you are that's where you're messed up. And all of this instruction is pointing that out. You're not what you ought to be. And you can't make yourself that. And so all, your only hope is that somebody could make you that. The, your only hope is that there's a divine physician who can give you a new heart that would have this new love and have these new desires and this new, new abilities to actually walk in the things that God has instructed them in. One of the things that's pointed out in all of this is if you, if you have no heart to actually do these things, it's because you have no heart to actually do these things. What you need is a listening heart, which is exactly the thing that Solomon prays for when you Read this in the Legacy Standard Bible, which, you know, I'm always recommending that, but it's probably in the footnote in your Bible if you're reading NASB or ESV, so that's okay. But what he prayed for at the, you know, the dedication of the the temple was to have a listening heart. He he was praying to have a Shema heart. You know, he was praying to be that Deuteronomy 6 king and father. He, he, He was... Praying to be an example of what all of us are supposed to be in the world, which is people who have this listening heart that fears God and walks in His wisdom. Now, when you look at the end of this verse, verse 11, it says, you know, they're to keep these things to do them. Now, is he telling them to do them because he's assuming that they can do them? He's saying, come on, guys, do these things. I know you can do it. Just get your act together and do what I told you to do already. Is that how this is coming across? What's the problem? Is it possible to command somebody to do something that they can't to point out that they haven't done something. It is possible. And now for my very poor analogy of that. You can can tell somebody uh, to clean the bathroom in your house. And they can tell you, I will clean the bathroom exactly as you have said. And they can hear what you have said, they can articulate that they've understood you and that they're going to do it, but then not do it. And then later, you can confront them with, you are to keep my command to clean the bathroom in a way that esteems the interest of others above yourself and demonstrates a decision which reflects God's worthiness and a care for those who are made in his image. You are to do this today. Maybe you haven't put it exactly like that in your house, but I'm trying to make an analogy here. <laughs> and usually, what, what's the response you get when you point out, you were supposed to do this. You said you were going to do this. I say, I forgot. <laughs> Remember we had talked about that sort of concept? Forgetting is not that it you know just slips your mind here, at least in how it's presented here in Deuteronomy, but you were apathetic. You, know, you were choosing not to do something. You knew what you were supposed to do, but you chose not to do that and to be doing something else. So then the next well, what were you doing? You know, When you were being apathetic toward doing what I told you to do, what were you doing? It's like, well, my friend Canaan wanted me to go check out an altar and some pillars and an asherim and some graven images. I was busy. <laughs> so you see, a, a, a command to, to do something can pros- it can prosecute. You know, see, this is... Yahweh's communicating in, in one aspect of himself as you know, judge and lawgiver, he's saying, do these things. You, you're supposed to do this, which they should be thinking, we don't do that. Uh, we're in trouble with the judge. But you're also hearing his fatherly love and that he's saying, but I've, I've chosen you for this purpose, and I'm still going to keep all of my promises uh, even though you're totally backwards to me and have no heart to do these things, I'm gonna give you a heart to do these things and I'm gonna bring you into the land. So you you have this sort of fear that's that's balanced with a a, a judge's judgment and a father's loving discipline being all pulled together. So you see it's... We've pointed out many times that the, this is what the law does. It, it points to something. You know, the, the law is—it means instruction, and it's an instructor. It's a, it's a guide. It's a, it's a teacher. It's a tutor. This is how it's talked about in Scripture. And it's like, well, what is it pointing to? What is it teaching? Well, it's teaching God is holy, and you're not, which means you're separated from Him. And it's teaching, you need to go to somebody who can reconcile this relationship of holy God and sinful man. So it points out the separation and the need for a savior, the need for a mediator to reconcile that relationship. So you see, they can't just turn around and say, well, okay, we'll fix the relationship, we'll try harder. You know, the law wasn't pointing to itself as a way for somebody to try to save themselves by a better morality. But instead it's pointing to you don't do this, you can't do this. You need somebody to do this for you and to, to change your, your thinker, your feeler, and your doer. You need something far greater than just trying harder. We see here also in this text this, this concept of the fear of God that it's a there is a a healthy fear of his judgment and it that is meant to motivate something in people what what does the fear of judgment motivate in people you think yeah it should motivate repentance you know turning you know from sin and to him we had talked about this in this idea of you know what it means to fear God and you know a way I've chosen to to teach that to lay out the aspects of it they all begin with F's so i will help you with the guesswork here but fearing God what, it, what does it involve Yeah, you're forsaking sin. You know, this is our repentance idea. And if you're, you're, you're forsaking sin, you know, there's a bunch of sin over here, and you forsake it, and you start going this way, what's happening? Yeah, you're following him. Which is the, the idea of, you know, repentance and Faith. You know, you're, you're turning from living in sin, but you're turning in faith to God to follow him. It's because you fear him. You, you, you fear the consequences of sin because you know that God's going to uphold those consequences and he's not going to show partiality to you. He won't say, well, because you're Jewish and you're special because of that, you know, I'm not going to judge you like I'm going to judge other people. Or because you go to Foothill Christian Fellowship, I won't give you the same consequences that other people have from their sins. And eh, because you read four chapters in the Bible this morning, you know maybe I'll just let you slide on this one. So there's no partiality, and that should cause us to fear. I, I remember we had gone over that uh, statement back in Numbers when we went to the book of Numbers. It says, "Your sin will find you out." I Think, oh man. <laughs> Uh, maybe this is a bad idea. It's like, you know, maybe nobody else is watching, but there is somebody who's watching and they're the only one who matters. And that's God ultimately. And that sort of fear causes you to, to turn to following him, which has got to be born not just out of a, a fear of consequences of sin or discipline that, that might occur, but it, it's a turning to joy. It's a turning to something that's good for you. Because when a person is converted, they don't look at God's instruction as a burden. And say, man, like I have to do that, but I don't want to do that. But like I have to. Well, in 1 John it talks about when, when somebody truly has the love of God in them, his commandments, they're not a burden. Like, they want to do them. They, they understand that God is good, his instruction is good, living for him is good. And if I want what's good for me... Uh, I'll forsake sin and and follow him, which is very easy, in theory at least, to understand. It's very difficult in practice because one of the problems that that we have is we actually want to sin. We, We actually like doing those things. And we need to have our affections changed in that way and sanctified it. Putting the flesh to death feels like putting something to death Uh, it hurts and it doesn't want to die and it takes some things are harder to kill than others (laughs) Uh, I'll just leave hunter people understand that I'm sure it's like you got to shoot it right and if you hit it in the wrong spot you got to hit it more times to take it down or it's you know it's one thing to butcher a chicken and another to slaughter a cow you know some some sins are like chickens and others are like cows, I guess. That's what I'm getting at. <laughs> I I mean literally, some are like cows. We're gonna have that in Exodus thirty-two in the main service. <laughs> yeah, speaking of graven images. <laughs> we have to be reminded that that there's only there's only one God. Yeah, this is something that's being you know, echoed to, to Israel over and over and even to us as we read this ancient text. There's, there's only one God. This is where he began. He's like, hear, O Israel. You know, the, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. There's only one. You're in this relationship with only one. There, there are not any others. And God, you see what he's doing? He's, he's lovingly instructing them to love him. Now, this isn't because God is selfish or has some weird sort of love complex, you know, he, and he, does, he doesn't need these people to, to love him so he can feel more secure about himself. You know, God, God is totally secure just within the inter-Trinitarian love, and he doesn't need people to love him, but they need that. It's to their benefit that they love him, and so he's instructing them for their good to do the, the best possible thing which is to be devoted into loving him. And so the fear of God means you know, you, you listen to him and him alone. Uh, you're keeping covenant with him in faithfulness with an exclusive kind of love and there's unique things in that relationship that that can't be shared idolatrously or adulterously. However you pronounce that word. So the fear of God, it also includes the side that we talked about that God's going to repay each one according to their works. Uh, you'll have consequences for your sin just like anybody else. And so it's for your good to to do what is right so that it goes, well for you, so that you enjoy life in the way that God has ordered it within his creation. And as we've talked about this promised judgment, it motivates both repentance and obedience. And I want you to see how this uh, logic is re-preached in the Bible in Proverbs 24, verse 10. That's where we're going, Proverbs 24:10. which is a book by that guy Solomon that we talked about who prayed to have this Deuteronomy 6 kind of heart which God granted and used him as the, the human vehicle to give us this text in which we're going to see this concept of God rendering to man according to his works. Or so in Proverbs 24.10 is where we're beginning at here we'll do 10 to 14 here's the king teaching and training the future prince that'll be over the kingdom and he says if you are slack in the day of trouble your strength is in trouble deliver those who are being taken away to death and those who are stumbling to the slaughter oh hold them back if you say behold behold We did not know this. Does not he who weighs the hearts understand? And does not he who guards your soul know? And will he not render to man according to his work? Eat honey, my son, for it is good. Indeed, the honey from the comb is sweet to your taste. Know that wisdom is thus for your soul. If you find it, then there will be a future. And your hope will not be cut off. So you see this in this king who's training a, a future king. That You need to, to understand that this faithfulness to God is uh, your strength. And if you're not strong in this, you're going to be in trouble. And everybody who's under you is going to be in trouble. Because your, your sin never affects only yourself. It's always going to affect other people. He says, but you have the opportunity not only to live by what is right, but to teach others what is right so that they can be delivered from death. And then he's, you know, talking to the, the kid who didn't clean the bathroom. And they say, behold, we did not know this. <laughs> you know, I didn't know that you said that. And which is, you know, usually responded to with, you know what I said. You even echoed back to me what I said. <laughs> he said, you know, does not he who weighs the, the hearts understand? Like, you think that God really doesn't understand what has happened in this confrontation here. You know, does not he who guards your soul know? But think about that. He's not just, you know, pointing it out just to point it out because he likes to be critical of how, you, how you're living your life, but it's to guard your soul. It's to protect you this is a protecting love that is confronting and there's that idea of the, the fear of God you know will, will will he not render to man according to his work it's like you think that like you'll escape this like just because you you'll become the king over Israel you'll be exempt from the consequences of sin it's like well okay dad then what do you do it says eat honey my son For it is good. Now, was he commending going to the the pantry and dipping a spoon in a jug and slurping down some honey, or was he talking about something more specific than that? What is described as being honey in the Book of Proverbs? Yeah, wisdom, which is from the Word of God, and is the Word of God. So he's, saying, he's saying, you know, eat God's word. You know, it's, it's the thing that makes life sweet. It's like, take this in so that it can nourish you and give you strength to walk in these things. He says, indeed, the, the honey from the comb is sweet to your taste. Know that wisdom is thus for your soul. So, you know, wisdom is like honey. It's, it's sweet skills for life that, that taste good. And he says, if you find it, then there will be a future and your hope will not be cut off. This sort of logic continues in Scripture into Romans 2, which is the last text we'll look at. And I want to turn there and conclude at this point, Romans chapter 2, if you want to join me in turning there and you're going to hear these same concepts again Romans chapter 2, therefore you are without excuse, O man, everyone who passes judgment. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you presume this, O man, who passes judgment on those who practice such things? And does the same that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of judgment and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, "'who will repay to each one according to his works. "'To those who by perseverance and doing good "'seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. "'But to those who are selfishly ambitious "'and do not obey the truth, "'but obey unrighteousness, wrath and anger. "'There will be affliction and turmoil "'for every soul of man who works out evil.' of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who works good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law, For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law naturally do the things of the law, these not having the law, are a law to themselves, and that they demonstrate the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience, bearing witness in their thoughts, alternately accusing or else defending them on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. So when you think about these realities of the kindness of God, the privilege of having his word, and the, the command to love him above all else, we're here to learn the Love is a choice that we make. It's, it's the best choice that we ever make to be committed to the one who is committed to us and won't be show partiality even when we sin against him. That because we belong to him, he'll discipline us, but he'll turn us toward better things. So this is in one element of this lesson. Perhaps it points out that you don't have a listening heart, which is why you haven't been listening to God or walking in His ways, because you've never been given a heart to do so. And that's what you need. You need to pray for that listening heart. You need to pray for conversion. You need to pray that God would grant you repentance. And then to ask yourself, what has happened to me that I'm praying for these things all of a sudden rather than not praying for them? But for, the, for us that are converted who have been born again with a new relationship to God, this is a, a reminder that, that He loved us when we were unlovely. Yeah. He, he chose us when we didn't have anything to, to give to Him or to add to Him. It was just totally of his grace that he chose us and gave us the privilege of having fellowship together under his instruction, life together as his family, that we'd have the joy of making him known and knowing him forever as his people. So as we conclude here, does anybody have any questions, comments, comments, praises. for Thank you to the Lord. Yeah, thankful to the Lord for his encouragement from his word. All right. Well, I'll I'll pray for us and you can enjoy some fellowship together. Gracious Lord, thank you for this word which reminds us of your electing and redeeming love, of your covenant-keeping love, of your love which sought our interest. We think of Christ, his willingness to be sacrificed, to suffer many things in our place, to go through much suffering that we could have eternal comfort. He did all of these things to display your goodness, and he did all these things for our good. We thank you, Lord, for the reality of circumcised hearts, cleansed hearts, new hearts that love you and have new abilities and uh, affections to want to walk with you and to be able to walk with you. Thank you for this joy. Thank you for the reminder of the the tension that we live in and carrying about the body of death while waiting the resurrected body of life, but there's evidence of life in us and evidence that death is passing away and will not defeat us, that its sting and power has been taken away. Thank you for the certain hope that we have in Christ that we will be fully redeemed, fully resurrected, fully delivered from the old life to enjoy only the new life forever and ever. Thank you for your love and help us to walk in it and to love one another as you first loved us. Amen.